computer. This is data. I'm an android. I'm a basketball. I was processing all of the information. Processing. One of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball. Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. I am your host for today, Tim. You know me as Cranjus McBasketball on Twitter. And today we are going to be talking about Chris Gent, the Lakers' newest hire to their coaching staff. He will be Darvin Ham's lead assistant and has quite a history of, of both uh, playing professionally and also coaching. Uh, a well-rounded guy, has had several notable stops, and was someone that wasn't really on my radar uh, before the past week. So I had to do a lot of research. I know I had, I think, 14 different people at me on Twitter and ask, like, hey, is this good? Is this bad? How should I feel? Um, same thing in the Discord. I wanted to really do my due diligence here. I didn't want to look at a couple data points or pull up, you know, five minutes of film and say, you know, big thumbs up, full endorsement. I didn't want to find something I didn't like and say, ah, this guy stinks. I really wanted to dig in. So what I'm about to share is the culmination of about a, a full day of uh, digging into Ohio State film, Bakersfield Jam film, Atlanta Hawks film. Uh, all three stops are places that he was either a head coach or the offensive coordinator for. Um, or, you know, leading defensive efforts for. I got all the data I could find uh, and, and analyze that and really was able to dig into, like, what is his style? What does he bring? And how may he impact the Lakers? And what, you know, parts of the game has he had success with and lacked success with? So I found some interesting stuff there. And then I also reached out and, and checked in with eight different individuals who have covered him or, or the teams he was on throughout his stops over time. So I'm glad I checked in. I tried to not just, you know, see what was floating around on Twitter. It's it's easy, especially for assistant coaches. It's it's hard to know who's handling what and, and how long they've been doing it and how well they're doing with different things when there's so many different variables. So it was good to really dig in, do that deep dive, and, uh, you know, let's get started. So Chris Gent, I'll give you the full background on him, and we'll just kind of walk through his stops. And then afterwards, I think we can discuss what my takeaways are. So starting from the top, grew up in New Jersey, went to Ohio State, spent four seasons there. Uh, they went to, I think they won the, the Big Ten two years in a row. They went to three double NCAA tournaments, had success there, and then went and played him overseas professionally. Um, he had a couple years in the NBA. He actually won a ring with the Houston Rockets in 94. He's played more... Uh, playoff games than regular season games in his career. He was he's more an overseas guy. He's played in Australia, played in other places. Um, he played five seasons in the CBA. Uh, he played in Italy, Spain, Greece. He's been all over the place. After all of that, in 2003, he was hired as an assistant to the Philadelphia 76ers under Randy Ayers and then interim coach Chris Ford. Um, this was an AI, one of the AI teams, although he missed like half the season and they didn't do very well. And that resulted in the firing midseason. But Gent was on that staff in player development. This was his first coaching opportunity. And, and that is where he started out. The next season, he went to the Orlando Magic, also as an assistant doing player development, was very well liked. He was coaching a 19-year-old Dwight Howard. Grant Hill was on that team. Steve Francis was their leading scorer. Um, he ended up... Uh, 
So this was under Johnny Davis, and Johnny Davis was fired. So two stops in a row, unfortunately for him. The head coach has been fired, and uh, he was so well-liked. He did such a good job that even as a pretty young coach, he was labeled the interim head coach for the Magic that season. They ended up going 5-13 and 13 the rest of the year. This is like super, super early days. This is like very much a different era, different era um, in terms of like scheme. So I didn't bother to really like dig into that. I don't, I don't know something that he did 17 years ago is going to tell us a whole lot. But what I do think we can learn here is he was well-liked enough, even as a young coach, that he was able to get that interim head coaching spot early in his career. Um, he ended up being replaced during the off season and after about a year off, he went back and was a coach for the Cavs. And, and this is where he met LeBron James. This was coaching under Mike Brown. He was the assistant coach and director of player development for them and ended up being a personal shooting coach for LeBron and, and was the shooting coach for others. And I, I guess I'll note that his specialty is being a shooting coach in general from a development standpoint. That's that's where he he shines. Um, I saw someone on Twitter mention. Let me find the tweet. Uh, they said they'll they'll never forget running through a three point shooting competition drill with Chris Gent one evening when he was in high school or when the, when the, this kid was in high school. Uh, this player made seventy eight out of one hundred threes and was stoked. That's that's pretty good. And Chris Gent beat him by fifteen. <laughs> he hit ninety three out of one hundred threes. Um, so just a fun story there. He's a, you know individually he's a great shooter and he has been a great. Uh, he's very well regarded as a shooting coach and has been at a bunch of different stops and had the ability to really fine tune that skill set. So when I talk player development, I'm primarily talking shooting coach, but he was the director of player development with the Cavs and he was in that role for five, five years under Mike Brown. After that, he ended up going to Ohio State as an assistant coach and he was replacing their offensive coordinator, Brandon Miller, who they had the top offense in, in college basketball. If you go look at Ken Palm, they had the number one offense in adjusted offensive efficiency the season prior to Gent coming there. And looking at that film, it was fantastic stuff. It was, this. I mean, in 2010, this was elite, elite offensive scheme. This was as good as you can really get in college. Really, really awesome stuff. That guy went on to leave, spent a year in Illinois, brought their offense from mediocre to very, very good in his one season there, then joined Brad Stevens and Butler and was able to take over the head coaching job like three months after being hired. That's that's how you know bright he shined for them. And then they, they transitioned from, what were they in the Horizon League to the, what was that, the Big East? Wherever they went. Um, but that, you know, different coach. So Gent came into a situation, they had the number one offense, this was working for Thad Mata, he was there for two seasons in Ohio State, and looking at the team's play types, looking at the team's film, you can see how there was still influence from the, the previous scheme, but it's, you know, transitioned into what Gent liked to do, or liked, you know, more to do, and the college game is a little bit different from the pro game, 2011 to 2013 is a little bit different from 2022 um, but looking at what they did over there, they, they were successful. Um, they had the, what was it? Sixth. Yeah. They had the sixth best and then 14th best, uh, adjusted offensive rating in college basketball and all of college basketball under Jen. So that was pretty good. Looking at the film itself, it was, uh, it was ugly and I don't think it really translates all that well. Um, it was a lot of three out two win stuff. So like they had two big men, one at each block, like posting up. Or like if you tried to drive, you had to like drive around a bunch of traffic. So it was really, really congested in the paint. 
very, very different from like modern NBA basketball. Um, there was about as much post game as pick and roll game, which is really bizarre to see. It's very much a college thing for specific teams. Uh, from a set play standpoint, I liked uh, some of their empty side lob sets. They did a good job like setting up some highlight plays that way. But really, if I had to boil down what this offense was, it was just constantly posting up or trying to post up. And from an offensive like spacing standpoint, driving standpoint, it was really, really ugly stuff. Um, in terms of post-help counters, wasn't a whole lot there. Uh, they didn't really have much offense passing out of the post. It was it was feed Jared Selinger, get out of the way, <laughs> was, was what that offense was. In the second season, we saw more four out one in. We continued seeing those, those fun lob sets, clearing out an empty side. We saw a lot more ball movement, moving the defense side to side to then drive and attack. Um, they did a really nice, uh, I liked they had a, a, like a slice stagger motion play where you'd have a, a back screen leading into a, a staggered down screen. Um, this style of the offense was much more college than NBA, but they did a good job using some smart actions. You saw some floppy action. They'd, they'd pick and pop. They'd pick and roll. They'd roll and replace. Uh, they would use veer action, which is a concept we've talked about that beats drop coverage well in our X's and O's course. They did a good job setting up shooters uh, with fade, uh, spot up shooters, I should say, should say, with like fading and lifting, just moving without screens along the perimeter to you know create distance between you and your defender as a defender may try to you know stunt into gaps and help on drives. So then when you do pass out, either they have more open shots or they've got a bad closeout to attack. And, and can go from there. We also started to see more horn sets uh, from Gent, and this is something that we'll continue to see from him, um, but they had some good horns, elbow, uh, you know, pass the ball to one elbow, and then the elbow screen for each other, and you get a nice deep ball screen. So I don't know. I, I, I'm just listing off plays at this point, but I liked what I saw. It was good stuff. There were smart actions. It was still college style, but for a motion offense in college, it was really, really solid. It wasn't as good as it was before Jen got there the year prior. I think that was like, that's a really high bar to set, but it was still very good. And they had a lot of success that way. And this was post Jared Sullinger. So they, they had lost their like national player of the year candidate guy. Um, although they did have, oh gosh, what was his name? They had a guy that, that followed him that they ended up, you know, having had a really, really good season that year. But they had success offensively. He was the offensive coordinator. And as we saw them transition more to what he wanted to do, it looked more and more like modern NBA offense. And this was happening in 2012, the 2012-2013 season. So he leaves that. He goes to work in Sacramento for the Kings as an assistant under Mike Malone. Uh, he This was an interesting stop. I'd love to get some more insight here because he started in June... June 10th, 2013, he was fired December 16th, 2014. He was fired 22 games into the season, uh, which is interesting. I don't know exactly what his role was there. I don't have much insight. I'm imagining shooting coach plus maybe offense. I don't know, maybe defense. Not sure. Could have just been player development. But he didn't last very long there. Um then he took a year off, and then after that, he was able to bounce back and get a head coaching job for the Bakersfield Jam, which is a G League team that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, they turned into, like, what are they called? The Northern Arizona Suns or something like that. And then that team was sold from the Suns, like, minor league to 
the Pistons, so now they're like the Motor City somethings. Um, this team, Synergy has like erased all their data. Uh, so I couldn't even find their film. I couldn't find their data on Synergy. I had to like go out of my way to locate other game tapes to watch some of them. So I don't have a great grasp on exactly how they were playing from a style of play standpoint. But looking big picture, they had that season their worst record in six seasons. It was uh, it, it, right after he left, the record was better the next two years. Um, so it was a weird down year for them. They had a really good offensive rating, six best offensive rating. Um, they were second, ninth, and ninth the three years prior. Uh, the two years after, they, they averaged 10th. So it was a little bit of a bump there for them. Defensively, they had been very, very good and then were very bad. They were the, one of the worst teams defensively. So not great from a you know film standpoint. We saw more of that three-out, two-wins, three-out, two-win clogged offense that I saw in Ohio State and wasn't a big fan of. We saw those lob sets again. We saw more horn sets that I did enjoy. They had a nice horns flex set that got them easy buckets. A horns double screen set that, that would attack catch hedging well and make rotations difficult. Um, they had more of those slice actions where they'd get that uh, back screen that would then flow into maybe Chicago action or uh, you know a, a pin down weak side as they're looking to set up a post up. I saw more smart action and I saw them set up post-ups really well. I saw them, I, I, this would be better for a film review. This is stuff I'll post in the film room channel um, and show you specific examples in the Discord. Uh, you can join that in the lower bowl tier. It's five bucks a month. You get that in the bonus pods. They would use the post player as a screener for others or they'd have a, a shooter like curl around them and then run into their defender um, or I don't know, all kinds of different things. But they did a good job of setting up post-ups so they could get deep post entries, which I think would be great for Anthony Davis. And this was something that I think he really added to his game from Ohio State to here. It was not just, you know, figure it out, post-up yourself. It was, we're going to help you get good positioning. So that was really cool. Um, we saw some good clear-out sets to attack, you know, simple attacks for good perimeter ISO players. Uh, we saw, I mean, I saw Horns plays where they'd have, like, a player from the wing they did like get a post or get a, an elbow entry and then have the like corner player, you know, sprint to the rim and post up a smaller uh, defender with like a post pin where you get behind them for an easy like lob in and layup. So like the kind of stuff that like the Celtics were using with like Marcus Smart against Steph Curry, like smart stuff. Um, so I don't know. We, we saw some similar concepts. The personnel that they had wasn't really like able to space the floor the best, which is why we saw more of that three out two in, but they somehow ended up having a great offense even with that. So I think that speaks to how he was able to elevate what they had and, you know, create a good situation out of maybe not the best personnel. Um, we saw a step up when it came to helping, uh, countering post help when it would come baseline specifically, we saw them do a good job, like cut it. If they had three guys in the perimeter, cut the middle one. And, and make sure the other two is, are as spaced out as possible. And that opened up much better kickouts in, or, or, you know, hitting the cutter or kicking it out and getting open shots or attacking closeout. So that, I, so we, we see growth, I think is what I'm trying to articulate. We see the lob pets plays, the lob sets were consistent. The horn sets were there and continue to grow and develop. The three out to win based on the personnel was something he could go to and have success with both in Ohio State and at Biggersfield, even though it wasn't really ideal, 
but he did little things to make the most of it and, and, and help elevate the team in those situations. And we saw growth when it came to setting up the post-game, you know, pre-catch and post-catch. So I, I think that was neat to see. After this, he went, he ended up going back to Ohio State. Um, again, under Thad Mata, same head coach. This time he was replacing their defensive coordinator. So he had left, they replaced him with somebody, and then the coach that was handling defense left, and he was brought back and was there to help with the defense. In terms of how the defense did, it was uh, much worse upon his arrival for the two seasons. Um, he, he was there. The offense continued to be, you know, about the level it was prior, to, you know, to him arriving the second time. And I didn't see a big schematic difference there. So it looks like he did end up backfilling and, and, and really acting as their lead defensive assistant. And I'll make a note, sometimes teams don't use the word coordinator. Um, we heard even like Darvin Ham in his press conference say like, we don't, you know, we don't want coordinators. We, we want everyone collaborating. We, we don't want anyone like keeping their head down and, you know, dozing off when we're talking about offense and they're the defensive guy. You want collaboration. And that's the right approach. But you still do need to have some specialists and you, you do need to, you know, enable ownership. And th- they did with that with Milwaukee, with Ham. We've seen Gent in his stops with that as well. So all along the way, shooting coach, helping guys develop. But this second Ohio State stint gets that defensive experience. Um, so interesting there. Good to see. He was only there for one season, and then Thad Mata was, was gone. Um, he had some health issues, and the team wasn't performing well. So coaching staff changed there. Gent moved from that then to Atlanta, which is where he's been since then. His first season, and this has been interesting, his first season was with Mike Budenholzer. He was then not brought to Milwaukee, along with Bud and Ham and uh, Forcier and I think Charles Lee. I'm trying to think of who else was there. He was left behind, and I was not able to get clarification as to why that happened. So I don't know what was happening there, but he stayed in Atlanta. Lloyd Lloyd Pierce was hired. Pierce was there for three seasons. Uh, first two full years, the third year, he was fired about halfway into the year. And then Nate, Nate McMillan replaced him for the rest of that season. That was last year. And then this season was all McMillan. Between those three coaches, he had three different roles. He, with Bud, was shooting coach, player development. Under Pierce, it, he had more of a defensive focus. And then with McMillan, he, this season, ended up taking the lead assistant role, but during the transition year between, you know, where they had the two coaches, he transitioned over to helping the offense and keep that continuity. And then this season was their lead offensive assistant as well. Everyone in Atlanta helps with player development. He was more the shooting coach guy. Um, but that that's how his job changed a bit over time. So this is an interesting guy because he's got offensive experience, defensive experience, player development experience, shooting coach experience interim head coach experience. He's played overseas in the NBA. He's won a championship. He's been in the G League. He's coached in college. He's been to the Final Four in, in as a coach in college. He's won championships in college as a player. Uh, really interesting background, which helps him connect with players. And that was a common theme among the, the eight people I spoke with is how well Gent does at connecting with players and getting that buy-in, which is really important. He, it seems like he's got a smart mind, I like what I'm seeing from an X's and O's standpoint. There are some elements I like, some elements I don't like as much. We'll get into that in a sec. But big picture, he's he will add value in specific ways. And he seems like someone that will probably add value as a shooting coach. And 
seems like someone that should be able to help the team really implement what they want to be doing. There shouldn't be as much disconnect between the game plan and the execution of the game plan. Now, looking to Atlanta and taking a look at like their offensive rating, they were 27th in offensive rating prior to him arriving. That was a Budenholzer year. His first season still under Bud, 26th. At that point, he was player development. Then under Pierce for two years when he was handling defense, they had the 23rd and 25th offensive ratings. Both of those years, Trey Young was around. Um, and then once he started taking over offense, ninth last season and second this season in offensive rating. So same guy on staff for those five years. Once you see his role change to handling offense, we see a big, big jump. And the talent you know, saw a jump as well, and that is a big part of this. But we see the scheme itself change and become more uh, smart, more effective, better modern-day NBA stuff. And that, to me, is encouraging. From a defensive rating standpoint, looking year after year, prior to him joining, they were 27th. His first season as a player development guy under Bud, they were 24th. And then his two years with the defense, they were 28th and 28th. And then when he then moved to take on the offense, they jumped up to 18th. And then this past season, they were 26th under McMillan. Under those Lloyd Pierce seasons, and this is something I wish I could do this a month from now when we have our new optimization ratings figured out. But based off of our old optimization ratings, we had a b-ball index that don't cover the last two years, but did cover the the two uh, Lloyd Pierce years um, prior to him getting fired. We see C- minus offensive optimization and then F defensive optimization. From this stop, from that second Ohio State stint, and I honestly don't know about some of the earlier stops. If he handled any defense, it it wasn't brought to my attention. I I don't have any evidence to suggest that. But from what we can tell, it doesn't seem like he's the best defensive mind. He has experience there. It doesn't appear to have gone the best. Um, Under Pierce, the the Hawks had D-minus pick-and-roll coverage versatility. That's not very modern. Um, they, they were not, they were not good. And it wasn't just because the personnel was bad. This was them underperforming the personnel. So defensively team didn't have success. And I don't know that he's going to add value there, but that's okay. That is why Darvin Ham is here. So it's like his weakness is somewhat mitigated because I don't think his role is going to be like defense. Now, offensively, the Hawks did a lot of fun stuff. We saw continued horn sets. We saw continued, uh, you know, emptying out an you know, empty side for, for lob plays. We saw new integration of concepts, and this is important to me, where the Hawks would cut a perimeter player to the rim, and then instead of just having, you know, the, them clear out to a corner and whoever was in the corner move up to the wing, they would use exit screens um, for some off-screen opportunities to create better scoring chances for their shooters. And this is something that should fit really well into that blue box system that Darvin Ham wants to run, where you have a player under around the rim who may not be a big man. So, I mean, this sets up stack or Spain action, which the Hawks run some of um, really, really well. I see this being such a great fit with what Ham's structure would already have. So the the specifics of how I think Gent will be using these guys fits perfectly with the structure that's already there. I think that's a big, big thing. We saw a lot of simultaneous action where there'd be like a ball screen. And then as that ball screen's happening, you'd have an off ball pin down or flare screen or exit screen. That's good. 
that occupies help defense that makes it much, much easier to attack with your primary action. Or if the defense does sell out to stop the drive or the roll or whatever it is, then you do have a weak side guy, not just standing around, you know, making it easy for the defense to play 1v2, but using screening action and movement to take advantage of, of a number's advantage and generate great shots. So that to me is really smart. Um, I saw even smarter, and we saw this in Bakersfield as well, not as much in Ohio State. When they run a pin down, it didn't work. Don't know what to do. Bakersfield, and then with the Hawks, run a pin down, it doesn't work. You flip it into a ball screen. Little things like that. You can see a little growth with with his journey over time. Um, one familiar thing you'll see is that sidelines out of bounds play where you inbound the ball, and then there's a back screen that flows into a handoff or a down screen. Vogel used that, and, and we saw Gent use that in Atlanta as well. From a cover, you know, from an offensive style standpoint, this was a pick and roll heavy offense, and they were the number one pick and roll offense this regular season. That did not translate to the playoffs because they had a very, very specific weakness in that they were really bad at attacking switching, and this is a concern for me. Their switching was uh, they scored they, they had a 94 offensive rating on on direct scoring chances. This was the most common coverage they faced because teams figured out that they they didn't do a good job attacking it. Um, this was a concern of mine. This is why we saw just the disaster class we did in the playoffs. And Trey Lump, Trey Young looked like a bum, and Miami shut him down. And like there were other reasons they lost that series, but that was a primary one. Their top offensive thing that they do that enables a lot of, you know, setting up their shooters, setting up their rollers, setting up Trey Young. They, instead of facing, you know, uh, you know, aggressive coverages that they're really good at attacking, instead of facing drop, which I don't think they attack the best, but they still are decently efficient at because you have Trey Young and he can hit pull-up threes. Instead of that, they were facing what they're worst against repeatedly, and it did not work out for them. So, Beating switching, big concern of mine. Beating drop coverage, I didn't see uh, much fear action, which he's used in the past. Their stack usage, I think, or Spain or whatever you want to call it, the, the Suns called snap. I'd love to see more of that. I saw a little bit of it, but I'd like to see much more of it. Um, it was just a lot of pull-up threes or Trey Young dribbling into the paint and then trying to either shoot a floater or engage the dropping big and then dump it off with late passes it wasn't as organized as I think it could be. And from my perspective, unless there's a big Russell Westbrook tr- Westbrook trade with Russ, LeBron, and THT as ball handlers and with a lot of like Braun AD like ball screens or Russ AD ball screens, I'd imagine that drop and switching are going to be two top coverages that we're going to see the Lakers have to attack. So the way that they went about going after those was not the best to me, but big picture on the season, they were efficient at attacking drop coverage. Their stack actions worked well. Um, maybe I just, I need to watch some more film. Maybe I'll, I'll spot more usage, but what they did towards the end of the year and in, in the playoffs wasn't where I think it, it would need to be to attack those. So that's a concern of mine, but they did really great stuff in general and really great stuff in terms of attacking aggressive coverages. The thing is we just, we don't have Kyrie. We don't have Dane. We don't have Trey Young. We don't have Luca. So, looking big picture, defensively, he has some experience there, hasn't gone well. Underperforming talent, hasn't had success at the team level. That's okay. That's what Ham's for. Offensively, we've seen growth. We've seen smart stuff. We've seen him work around clunky personnel 
and be creative and not just try to run the same things everywhere, but adapt to his personnel and continue growing conceptually. So I like a lot of what I've seen there. We've also seen them struggle in terms of when they do post up, and he's not generally a high post up offensive guy, but when they do post up, I think they could do a bit better. Uh, They do a good job setting up post ups, but I think they could do a bit better at attacking after the catch when help comes. This was a big thing when Ohio State lost and ended their seasons against Wichita State and, and against Kansas in, in March Madness. They had long droughts of just not scoring at all because they didn't handle teams sending help at their top score as well. Um, so with the Hawks, I like a lot of what I saw. I think a lot of this stuff in general is going to translate. Um, I think I've covered the weak points I'm excited for the lob sets. Those are going to be fun. The gent effect in general, if, if we look at the play types for the teams he's been on before he was there and then with him there under the same head coaches from Ohio State before and during him, the first stint when we know he's handling offense. With the Hawks, with Bud before him, with actually, no, wait, we didn't look at that because that doesn't matter because he wasn't offense there. Uh, what am I looking at? Oh, yeah, the McMillan teams, like just looking at all these different situations. The gent effect, to me, if I had to summarize it, is you're going to see more more ball screens. You're going to see a higher usage of spot-up scoring, so setting up our perimeter players to attack, uh, you know, catch and attack, less off-screen usage, more kind of standing around from those guys, or movement without screens, and less posting up. So I'd expect from all of this, it fits well into what Ham likes to do with the blue box, I think it's going to set up Russ well. I think it's going to set up LeBron well. I think we're going to see more AD as a finisher perhaps than as a post player, though I still think he's going to get his post-ups. But between between Ham's system and between what we've seen from Jen, I wouldn't expect like AD to suddenly be posting up all the time. That's just not how they have operated in the past. but that's a little bit at a high level of what we might see a difference in. And, and I covered really the specifics of how that might look. Now, another element is is the player development. Or actually before that, the leadership commonality, again, between all the eight people I talked to. They had different insights into different parts of his career. His leadership ability, his ability to connect with players, get them on the same page, implement what the coaches want to do. That's been a big thing. So that's a big plus. And then from a development standpoint, he has a really good reputation as a shooting coach. I struggled in our basketball index database, which only covers like half of his coaching career. Um, And it was more the half where he was more involved with like offense and defense, not as much just like helping with three-point shooting. Um, When we look at like three-point shot making growth in in looking at players who for multiple seasons were on on a team he was coaching, I couldn't really find guys who had growth other than John Collins, which is the one that we've seen people call out publicly. Um, and we've, we've heard LeBron, you know, mention how, how great he was for his shooting. I, maybe, I don't know. This is, and again, this is just basic data. This, there's nothing advanced here with the LeBron stuff. Cause this is going back pretty early in his career, but before Gent was coaching LeBron, he had a 33% three point percentage with Gent 32.9% <laughs> after Gent 35.8%. And, and we've seen him in more recent years develop that shot. From a free throw shooting standpoint, he shot 74.6% before Gent, 74.3% with Gent, and then 72.3% after Gent. 
I don't know. It, it's it's such a tricky thing to try to look at. I will say, just from a data standpoint, there's nothing there that I'm pointing at as evidence of this. I think I can dig a little bit deeper. I didn't see from an Ohio State standpoint, they didn't really have bigs that during their, the course of their time there, it being in the rotation for big minutes, like developed three-point shots. But if he can do this for Collins, and, and maybe he did it for other guys that I need to go look at, at like, I don't know. The thing is, he only spent a year with the Kings. He only spent uh, like a year with the Magic. He only spent a year with the Sixers. So getting like a multi-year sample with him other than with the Cavs, which I think I can dig a little bit deeper into, it didn't, I don't know. It's not really there. So it's harder to, is he only spent a year with Bakersfield? Like it's only spent a year with Ohio State, the second stint. Um, with the Hawks, I looked at that, didn't really see the the examples of it. So it's kind of, to me, from a data standpoint, a question mark. But, I mean, the re- reputation is probably a reputation for a reason. It's just harder from from the outside to, to be able to identify that. But, I don't know. That That is something that he should be bringing to the table. I do not expect suddenly for, like, THT, AD, and Russ all to be able to hit threes well. Like, I don't think that's realistic. But if one of them can see a big jump, that would be huge. That would be gigantic. Um, it's, from my perspective, AD's not going to be able to shoot worse than he did last season. It was a really down year for him compared to his other normal seasons. So he will shoot better. Um, Russ didn't have a great shooting year. THT didn't have a great shooting year. So if they grow a little bit, I'm sure he's going to get the credit and he will be the one putting in the work with them. Uh, Will it be abnormal compared to who else they'd be working with? I don't know. But I expect to see growth. With the reputation there, you'd expect to see growth. And... You know, it's it's tricky always when it's like, oh, this player endorsed this guy. AD's been a big Mike Penberthy guy for, for a while and has kept him around. And we've seen how that hasn't really helped. LeBron has his guy in Jet that he really liked and hasn't worked with in a while. Um, we have, uh, who am I thinking of? Gosh. Oh, I mean, Lethal Shooter, who AD's working with now. He, you know, had great praise for him in the past and then just, like, stopped working for him. Why did he stop working for him? Like, the shooting coach stuff to me is really tricky and weird, and it's it's tough to have a data sample to be able to say, like, these guys worked with this coach and grew this much because there's so many factors that can go into that and so many teams, like, the players are putting in a lot of work individually with their own shooting coaches, like AD is with Lethal Shooter. Um, maybe he won't be anymore with Jent coming in. I don't know that kind of those kind of confounding variables from the outside is really really difficult to to be able to look at this kind of stuff and for years prior to 2013 2014 we don't have the kind of shot quality data to really enable better adjusting so like maybe for lebron's threes and and free throw or well not free throws but for his threes he shot like the same percentage before gen and with gen maybe he was shooting harder threes with gen i don't know for those couple seasons we don't know it's it's really hard to say so that's really what i have on him i think he's going to add to what the Lakers are doing offensively. I think he'll help set up post-ups. I don't think they're going to be super high volume, but I think attacking aggressive coverages and ball screens is going to be good. I think we're going to see more ball screen action. I don't anticipate we're going to see a bunch of off-screen stuff, but it's the type of offense that I think can set up some of the stars. It can help ADB a finisher. Um, it can help with min guys as shooters, just kind of set them up well. It fits into what Pam likes to do with the blue box stuff. We've got the added bonus of he's a shooting coach. He's a different shooting coach. Um, he has a reputation of success. He has that notable example of John Collins, who has had success. And defensively, he has experience there. 
don't think he's the best defensive mind in the world, but that's okay. Um, this is a pretty well-rounded coach, about as well-rounded as you can get, as about as traveled as you can get in terms of coaching and playing in different environments. So I think the Lakers got a good one. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say he's like the best assistant out there um, or, or make any big claims that I can't really back up, but it seems like a smart hire. And I'm now going to be digging into Jordan Ott, who is someone that the Lakers are have announced as, well, I don't know if they've announced it. Maybe it was just, I think it was just like leaked as a candidate for a role as well. Um, he apparently was the Nets offensive coordinator this past year, which I mean, I'll dig in and I'll do my due diligence, but this offense wasn't all that good this past year from my perspective from the few games I did watch. So I need to uh, dig into that a bit more and, and give it a fair shot. I don't want to be making assessments based off of like, yeah, you know, I watched eight games of the Nets, four of them, you know, I was multitasking. Like that's not a good way to, to really do this kind of stuff. So that's all I have. Thank you for joining. I will be posting. I clipped a bunch of videos that I liked of different sets that, that, um, Gent used at different points in time at different coaching stops. I have those clips. I'll be posting them in the film room channel in the Discord, which you can access if you are in the uh, lower bowl level or above. So the $5 tier, $10 tier, any of those tiers, you'll be able to get to that. You can get into that group by sending me a five-star, uh, sending me a, a five-star review of the pod via DM or send it to Tom or send it to the podcast account. Just want to shout out really quickly before I have to go. Friend of the pod, Mike H, for generously supporting us as an arena sponsor. And then Zach Harris, QDaddyO, iPod Shuffle, Romario, Chamber Miguel, TJ, and Omar for living the high life with us in the owner's box. And then for all of you in the lower bowl and courtside for supporting what we do here. Really keeps us going. I talked about how to get in there. We also have Team for a Day going on. We've covered like 12, 14 teams, something like that. So we're getting closer and closer to saying here's which teams have which demands and how much money they have to spend. And we can really, you know, work through that and then figure out, okay, these are the players the Lakers realistically can target in free agency. Because that's something last year, we saw people, articles, podcasts, tweets, spaces, wasting time talking about players the Lakers had no shot realistically at acquiring given the, the spending power they had. This is the exercise that helps us really work through that and figure out who's a realistic target. We nailed a bunch of dudes last year. We nailed Kendrick Nunn for the Lakers. We nailed guys for other teams. Um, So give that a look. Anybody in the Discord can join in on those discussions. So we will see you over there. That's all for today. Hey, I just got another piece of info that came in after I finished recording the main audio for this podcast. Got some clarity on why Chris Gent did not go to Milwaukee with uh, Mike Budenholzer, Darvin Ham, etc. And the reason for that was that Gent was brought in by Travis Schlenk, the GM and president of the Hawks. He joined the Hawks uh, in 2017 after being with the Warriors. And he brought Gent in. He did not bring in Budenholzer and his staff. So when they left, Gent stayed. Um, and Gent also had worked with uh, Lloyd Pierce previously at another stop. So there was that connection and that's how we stem from one to the other. That's all for now. Thanks. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. 
Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.